All right, so uh, for those of you that don't know, we have been going through a series called We Believe. It's on the Nicene Creed and the core theological truths that unite Christians together. I want to go over a little bit of what we have studied uh, to kind of bring us all up to speed. This is the Nicene Creed. It was a document that was written in the fourth century, and it was namely penned so that Christians could identify who they were, but also guard off some unwanted bad teaching that was infiltrating the church at this time, particularly around the idea of who Jesus was, okay? So this creed gets me a little bit excited, so I'll try to read through it without adding too much of my own commentary, but we'll see how far we get. We believe. You see, guys, it's all about... Thank you. You're with me. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I do think it's important to note the use of the metaphor Father here. All throughout Scripture, it's not just God as Father, but we see God as Tower, God as Defender, God as Shepherd, God in some texts as Mother. And these metaphors that are used try to encapsulate the greatness of who God is. And here we see that God is the Father Almighty. He's got all power and he is the maker of heaven and earth. Please note this. It does not go into how God created. One of the big takeaways from this series, I think, at least for for us, is there's a table, and there are many chairs at the table, and we as the family of Jesus, followers of Jesus, we're allowed to sit together and feast, share meals together, regardless of the different doctrinal beliefs that we have as long as we're united on these sorts of core tenets. So we believe that God is one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. And here's where the creed starts to get very specific language about a heresy that was happening at this time. Um, It was brought up by a guy named Arius who said that Jesus was a little bit more than human but a little bit less than God. It's kind of like this in-between figure, but he was diminishing the divinity of Jesus and the authors of the creed wanted to solidify that Jesus was in fact God, not one who was created. It says that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. And these are very philosophical terms, but the main takeaway is that Jesus is God. Through him, all things were made, and they wanted to stress this so that we did not see Jesus as a created entity. It says, for us and for our salvation, Jesus came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. This is important for us because not only do we have a Savior who has paid the penalty of our sins. We also have a Savior who can identify with us in our weaknesses, one who was like we are, tested in every way. The humanity of Jesus, I think, sometimes gets a little bit shortchanged because we know that Jesus is the Son of God, but we see different pictures in Scripture where Jesus is struggling, where Jesus is praying for a different plan to take place. We see Jesus in the midst of difficulties, and that should encourage us that we can approach Jesus in prayer knowing that he understands where it is that we have been. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And here we got to talk about how Jesus has initiated new creation, which is like very Christian-y lingo, get out your theological dictionaries. But what it means is that Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, he has started something. He has started, in particular, the restoration of all human history. If 
that does not get you excited, check your pulse, people. That's why we are gathered here today because Jesus has started something that we now get to participate in. When we believe in Jesus and we trust in Jesus, we become part of the new creation and we get to act out in ways where we initiate that new creation in our relationships and in our work and in the different things that we spend our money on even and the things that we go after, the people that we advocate for, the ways that we stand up for justice and reconciliation in our world. We are actors in a new creative moment that has been initiated by Jesus. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. Even in the midst of your lives, which might be ravaged by insecurity and question and doubt and struggle, his kingdom will never end. And the amount of peace and hope that we gain as followers of Jesus through that is massive and also beautifully inspiring for us. It says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, and probably in the life of TRP, the spirit might get a little bit of the, the short end of the stick uh, but I hope that we can understand the role of the Spirit and how the Spirit will lead us and guide us into all truth and lead us and guide us into tapping into the things that have been specifically implanted in us to capitalize on those things. The way that you guys have been created, the talents and gifts, and, and not even that, but the dreams that you have, follow those dreams and goals and attempt to spread the good news of Jesus in the midst of that. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And if you were in the fourth century and you heard that, maybe more like fifth or sixth century, and you heard that and the Son, you might be like, what? What? He proceeds from the Father and the Son? What? One more time. This was a, a clause that was added. Actually, it was later on in the game. I'm sorry, but like ninth century or so. And when it was added, people freaked out. And this actually split the church into two. We had the Eastern church and the Western church because of the addition of this little phrase here. But for us, we don't really even understand what in the world is going on. It's talking about where the spirit comes from. And the point that the authors of the creed are trying to make is that the spirit, like Jesus and like God, is divine. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, and he spoke through the prophets. Now, I mentioned a little bit, the reason why we're doing this as a church is twofold. One, I believe it's important for Christians to know what it is that they believe. I think it's important for us to know what it is that we have centered our lives around, and some of the stuff that's included in the creed might not be things that we actually spend a lot of time thinking about Maybe even things that are as fundamental as the divinity of Jesus. We don't spend a lot of time thinking through that. We just accept it and we go on, but we haven't looked through scripture. We haven't really explored those sorts of themes. And what we want to do is pause for a moment and begin to scratch the surface on some of these ideas. Now, if you've been here and you've been listening online or you've been hearing some of these sermons, you know that we have left a lot of stuff on the table it would basically be impossible for me, being the type of personality that I am, one who is very much a perfectionist and wants things to be right and organized, um, to go through and to talk about every detail and every line of the creed. 
but we want to get our, our minds thinking about some of these themes. And the reason why we also wanted to talk about this is not just so that we as Christians know what it is that we believe, but we also wanted to talk about this so that we can celebrate together in the midst of a world that is completely and utterly divided. And everyone with a Facebook account said, amen. Can it just be over, people? We want to gather around these core theological truths so that we can be reminded again that when we leave our seats and we walk down this aisle to receive the body and the blood of Jesus, that we are a family, Republicans and Democrats, and my third party advocates as well. We are a family together under the banner of Jesus. And I think that in the midst of theological and political and just social and life uh, where we have built these walls, I want to begin to kick some of those bricks over so that we can begin again to remember who we are as a family. Okay, so all of that is introduction into this week, which is we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. One scholar talks about the scandal of appearances. And anything that we've talked about up to this point, God as Father Almighty, and you could maybe pick that apart where you say, God, it says in the creed that he's all-powerful, but at the same time in my life, he has not demonstrated himself to be all-powerful because the person that I was praying for still passed away. Or the relationship that I was still wholeheartedly invested in has been broken. Or you could even think about God as creator and how the world seems to be in a state of disarray and, and how that might not be true. Or, or Jesus being the savior, the one who is invested in you and you might struggle with your own self-worth and identity saying that can't be the case where there's a, a guy named Jesus who cares about me so much that he would sacrifice himself for me and for my salvation. There's a scandal of appearances where it seems as though we have to overcome at times what the creed is saying because of what we see and what we experience in our lives. And tonight, as we talk about the church being one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, and I'll explain some of these terms as we go, when we start talking about the church in those terms, we might say that the appearance of the church would be something completely different than that. N.T. Wright, this is from last week, he says, the point of the Spirit is to enable those who follow Jesus to take into all the world the news that he is Lord, that he has won the victory over forces of evil, that a new world has opened up, and that we are to help make it happen. We, as followers of Jesus, are to help make that happen. Luke Timothy Johnson also says this, Christians confess that this church, this gathering of frail human beings is the triune gods, God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, their chosen instrument for the work of transforming the world. We are a church on a mission. We are a church that is building for the kingdom. We are a church that has been energized by the Spirit to go out and to do the work in our community, seeing the lives that are broken and hurting, seeing the poor and the marginalized and inviting them in, seeing this metaphor of the big table and having people sit and dine with us who might not sit and dine with us if it were not for us asking them. We are a church who goes out and seeks people on the margins and advocates for those who are uh, being oppressed and suffering. We are a church on a mission. But now as I'm saying all that, you might be sitting there thinking like, oh, well, you know, 
about that. Sounds great, right? Like in here, when we talk about all those things and we can get excited and then it doesn't happen. Today, for example, I was at SU's 27th annual dance recital extravaganza. And I'm sitting there and I'm tapping into my... Um, this is, this is signs of a, a bad long night for you guys, but I'm, I'm tapping into my early days, Josh. You remember, the Josh that would come home from school and lay down a piece of cardboard and pop in that Jackson's The American Dream uh, video cassette that I had, and I would try to mimic the moves of the actor pretending to be Michael Jackson on my piece of cardboard? You know. So I'm sitting there watching the 27th annual SU dancing extravaganza. That's not its real title, but it should be. I mean, it's pretty good. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? This is real thought. I'm sitting there. You know what? I should take dance classes. <laughs> like I saw, I saw them up there and they were all moving and shaking. I thought, I got moves that are in here that need to be out. And I need somebody to help me with that. You know, like, so... But I know that there's no way on earth that I'm ever going to go get dance lessons. Um, I can't even imagine a class where that would be halfway normal for me to walk in. Like, oh, hey, hey guys, I'm just going to learn how to do a little shimmy. But like for us, we talk about we're a church on a mission. And maybe for the next 30 minutes, you're like, yeah, church on a mission. And then you leave and then you go back to your dorms, you go back to your homes, you go back to your lives where there's difficulties. And you say, eh, I'll just watch football instead. You know, there's moments where we get fired up and we get impassioned about these things, but a lot of times we don't take that out the door and people have seen that from us. If you've spent any amount of time with me, you know that I reference these works quite often. You've probably seen this slide. I've just ripped it off of a different PowerPoint that I had from like a few months ago. Um, but there was a book that was written in 2007. It's called Unchristian. Basically, these guys took uh, data from the Barna group they're like polling people to figure out what it is they think about Christians. Specifically, they were polling non-Christian people to see what their view was of Christians. And they narrowed it down to six adjectives or descriptors that this data set could identify us as. And it's not flattering. The six adjectives or descriptors are the church and Christians are hypocritical. We don't do the, the things that we say we do or we don't do the things that we're supposed to be doing. We're overly evangelistic, meaning that we just kind of, our, our concern is to get people saved and then we leave them there and don't really disciple them along the way. There's no teaching and training. It's just kind of, here, read this track, say this prayer, and then I'm gonna leave you and go do that again and replicate. They also believe that Christians and the church are noted for being anti-gay, being overly sheltered, not ones who, who know much about culture and the world, I guess you could say. Christians are overly political. And I know that this is like low-hanging fruit right now, but yeah, yeah, it seems like Christians have quite a bit to say about the world of politics in our specific moment in this culture, and that Christians are also judgmental. This is from 2007, and, and I don't know, like, I don't want to be Debbie Downer of the group here, but if you think about your experience with church people, you might see some of this in your memories or feel some of this in your experiences, or you might not feel that at all, which is awesome, and I hope that we have at least a handful of people that have great church experiences in their background, but this is not collectively how people on the outside view and see 
us. We might get all fired up in here, but when we take it out to the streets, it's one thing for me to sit there and say, yeah, I, I got these dance moves and I need to get them out, but if I don't take my moves out, out on the town, then the world's just deprived of that. There was another book, a follow-up book. This was from 2011, uh, same guys, and they were looking at a different study. Here they were talking about young Christians who have left the church, ages 18 to 30 or so. So this isn't non-Christians. This is people that have been sitting where you are and then something happens and then they leave. And the way that they describe their church experience is the church was overprotective. The church would not let them explore their ideas. The church would not let them think beyond the bounds of safety that the church was putting up. The relationships were shallow. There was not deep, meaningful relationships that these young people were experiencing. The church, in their estimation, was anti-science, and the church was also repressive, specifically with regard to sexual ethics. And again, what we see here is when you talk about 18 to 30-year-olds and then the 30-year-olds and up, and I can talk about that because I'll be 35 in a few weeks, um, so that puts me in a different camp, but we see this like battle of cultures here where for some people the things that you are thinking and the things that you are wrestling with are not the things that your parents or your grandparents are wrestling with. If I had some honest conversations with my grandfather perhaps, it would be a, be a, rough, be a rough little meal there, I think. But here we see just different uh, cultures that are clashing, how the church has not met the needs of the young people. The church is also viewed as exclusive and the church is viewed as doubtless. In other words, not allowing place for people to have honest conversations where they come up to their pastor and say, listen, pastor, I'm really struggling with X, Y, and Z. I was reading a book this past week where it said something to that effect where people could not honestly have conversations with their pastor. And in the side margin, I wrote, may it never be said of me. So here, what we, what we want to see is people that as they're leaving the church, and adults, I want you to, to focus in on something. Um, when you look around this space and you hear the statistics that say the 18 to 30-year-olds are leaving in droves, when you look around this space, what do you see? We need to celebrate that as a people, and we need to fight for relationships not to be shallow, but to invest in these folks. Okay, mini charge. All right, so what has your experience been in the church? Do you identify with some of these descriptors in the way that people are, are identifying Christians and the church? How has your experience in the church shaped you? Again, I hope that you have better experiences than some of these people. But what I want to at least put out there is the image of the church that people are seeing is not one that is unified, is not one that is overly holy, is not one that is Catholic in the sense of universal in scope and inclusive in the demographics that it uh, brings in, and one that is apostolic in the sense that it is rooted to the teachings of the apostles. Okay, so tonight I wanna kind of recapture some of that and talk about the four marks of the church as we see them outlined in the creed, and I'll try to motor along here. So the first one is we believe in one church. Which is interesting because when you go to Wikipedia and you start typing in list of Christian denominations, page one, page two, page three, oh, and here we are. Sweet, right? The good old cooperative Baptist fellowship that most of you didn't even know we were a part of. Yeah, that's us right there. So I saw this little graphic here, which is a 
ridiculous little cartoon and this guy's teaching a class. Are you kidding me? What? Who brought the Apple remote? Who's playing with me? You need to stop it in the name of the Lord, okay? Um, It says Christian churches and movements here and you can see like from the beginning and how it's just splintered off into all these different denominations and the teacher says, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. And I think it's important for us to know that there can be a, a, a something of arrogance when you say like, okay, I grew up on a pig farm in Laurel, Delaware. I have all of the right answers. Where we don't understand the, the diversity and the unity in the midst of Christians and we kind of posture ourselves as the ones who have finally figured everything out and the conversations with those people are tiring and difficult. Where it's like we can't even celebrate the fact that we all worship the same risen savior because we're too busy trying to figure out what's the best way to baptize people. And we can't uh, think about a church that is one because we're too busy building up these walls that separate us from other people. It's a church that's one in the sense of a church that's unified. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, he says this, my prayer is not for them alone, for the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through the message of the disciples that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There is a lot hanging on the fact that we can actually be family and we can be unified. The image that the people have of us is not one of that, so much so that they begin to question maybe even the legitimacy of everything that we're doing because we can't even get along. He continues and says, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Perhaps this is just a... a, a hazard of my job as a, as a pastor, and you guys don't feel this sort of thing, but the different congregations that have built up walls with Christian brothers and sisters because of different views that they have is causing our witness to be diminished. The fact that we get fired up in here about, yeah, we're a church on a mission, and then we do nothing with that is causing our witness to be diminished to what it is that Jesus is calling us to. Paul also echoes some of this. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. When you're arguing for your views, being humble and gentle will get you somewhere. Be humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, Paul says, and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. May it never be said of us that we have built walls between Christian brothers and sisters who might not look like us, act like us, think like us, and believe every little thing that we 
believe. Here, what the creed is looking for is unity, not uniformity. A lot of times churches have kind of demanded so much from their people that it's not just about these creedal statements where we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and we believe in Jesus Christ, Son of God. We, it, it's, it goes so much farther than that where we're trying to create a, a space where everyone agrees in all things, and this is not what the creed is asking for. The creed is actually, in fact, looking at unity in the midst of diversity, and we can parse that out any way that you want to. But the image that I usually use of this is going back to the table and asking the question, who is sitting there eating with you? Is it people that are just like you? Is there any sort of diversity at your table, whether that's culturally, doctrinally, politically, with regard to age and experience? What does that look like? where we are trying to act this out in the midst of our faith. Because when it comes down to it, TRP is a drop in the bucket of the followers of Jesus. And we don't all think exactly the same. And that's kind of what makes it so beautiful. There's unity in the midst of diversity, or there should be, because our unity is founded in Christ. And the way that we can accept Jesus and try to follow him in our lives each and every day. So we believe that the church is one. We also believe that the church is holy. And here's an idea that doesn't necessarily get a lot of play here because this is an, this is an idea that steps on some toes when we start calling people into holiness, where we start calling people into living a transformed life where it's not just the things that you once did, and that's cool, but we're asking people to actually begin to grow and to mature in following Jesus, to do things that you might not have done in the past Namely, positive things where you begin to encourage one another and love one another and fight for one another and be an advocate for one another and have your table be represented with different people that you might not have, in, have invited to spend time with you six months ago or a year ago or two years ago. There's a couple of different ways that we can think about this. When Paul introduces his letter to the Corinthians, he says, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. If any of you guys are looking for like cute baby names, I think Sosthenes would be a good one. Um, To the church of God in Corinth, check it, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The fact that you have Jesus in your life, the fact that you have accepted Jesus, that you have said he is Lord and that he conquered all evil in his death and his resurrection and that he has initiated this new creation, that we get to be a part of that. The fact that you have said that, you are now sanctified in and through Jesus. You are a different person now than you were before. But here's the catch. It doesn't just stop there, Paul continues. We're sanctified in Christ Jesus, and we're called to be his holy people. So take a moment and think about your life And think about the decisions that we make collectively, and this is not meant to be a guilt-inducing statement, but it is one that might be calling us to holiness. Are we just playing the game? We're hanging out in that first clause. Yeah, I'm sanctified in Jesus because I said that prayer a long time ago, but does your life demonstrate any sort of positive traits? This is not just a, hey, you should really sin less talk. This is a, hey, part of this is you becoming a new person, being transformed by Jesus and becoming about the things that Jesus is about. I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, the people on the margins, the poor, the oppressed, 
fighting for one another and including one another? Are we about that as a community or have we just kind of said the prayer and, and stayed there? There's also this tension between the, a call to individual holiness, which I believe is true. We as individuals should be moving towards understanding Jesus more fully and to living a more holy life, but we should also be communally acting in holiness together. Again, Luke Timothy Johnson says, to be a sacrament of the world's possibility, the church must embody a difference from the world that is visible and imitable. We could stay right here at home and just say, what is it about TRP? That when the world sees us, where they would classify us as a holy group of people that are providing an image of Jesus to the world around them. I hope that it's our work on Saturdays with the kids at the garden. I hope that it's a lot of our desires to start an after-school program here in Salisbury for those same kids. I hope that it's the fact that a lot of us are mentoring uh, these little guys over at Epoch. I hope that it's the fact that so many of you college kids are involved in really good groups and clubs where you're um, advocating for people and you're including people, whether it's a student ministry or something that's a, a bit broader than that. I hope that our lives do show some of this, but collectively as a, as a group of, of people, have we lost that passion to be a church on mission, to be a church that builds for the kingdom to demonstrate the fact that we are a church that is one in unity and also a church that is demonstrating the holiness that comes through Jesus. We're also a church that is, or we believe in a church that is Catholic, and this does not mean a church that is Roman Catholic, although they can fall into some of this as well. We believe that the church is universal and it's inclusive in its scope. Um, one scholar says the church is not restricted by geography, ethnicity, gender, class, or status. But let me pause there for a second. Have you restricted the church according to geography, ethnicity, gender, class, or status? Have we participated in that? We say we believe in a one holy and Catholic church, but does it show itself in everyday life? The church is not restricted by these things. It is a universal assembly that is made up of people from every tribe, language, culture, and place. And again, this is not to be a thing that just to beat you over the heads or to make you feel guilty about these things, but does our lives together demonstrate that in any way? I've been reading this book on reconciliation, and I came across this quote where basically the idea is all of the different people groups or these different folks that we have not had relationships with or the people that we have wronged in the past can potentially demonstrate the fact that we operate at times from a position of power. And this is what this author says. It says, reconciliation requires more than leaving places of power for periodic visits to communities of oppressed people. Reconciliation requires more than inviting persons from the margins to visit for conversations in places of comfort. It means ongoing relationships with many persons from marginalized communities. It means engaging in such relationships for the duration of our lives. It is a call for an exchange of places with the other. When we talk about the church as Catholic and the church as universal and inclusive, are we willing to go there? Are we willing to move from our place of power and status and authority and to switch places so that the other, whoever that is, can actually sit at the table and be heard 
Are we willing to go there? The example that we see throughout the gospels is Jesus who actually spends most of his time with these folks. And I hope that we as a church, we can embody that as well. Last thing, the church is apostolic, meaning that the church is rooted within the teaching of the apostles. And at times this can be a bit restrictive where people want to go back and make sure everything fits in this box. And in so doing, they miss the move of the spirit as God is leading us into different expressions of who he is. I hope at the end of the day that as we think about these sorts of things, we can look at the church We can ask questions about how our experience has been. The fact that you guys are here actually is meaningful. It means that your experience has not been so bad where you've written off the whole shebang because here you sit. But you might be carrying baggage and wounds where people have hurt you and harmed you and those people have worn the badge of Jesus in their lives. And that shapes and colors the way that you understand not only the church but it shapes and colors the way that you understand faith, salvation, acceptance through Jesus because the examples that you've seen in your life have not helped you or encouraged you. Regardless of whether you have positive examples or negative examples, the question that I want to leave us with is what are we doing in response? We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, but are we being the church? Are we the church on mission so much so that when we go out and the relationships that we have with the people around us, they see that, not because we're smiling like crazy people, unless that's how you do life, in which I affirm you in that, but where your actions demonstrate that you are about the things that Jesus is about. What is it that we as a church are doing? Are we taking that message that Jesus is Lord and that he has conquered evil through his death and his resurrection and that he has initiated new creation, that he has invited us in? Are we making good on that where we're actually moving and walking in that pattern where we become the church on a mission who cares about the things that Jesus cares about or is this just the thing that we do? If you're here and you need community, I pray that you will find it. If you're here and you need encouragement, I pray that we will encourage you. But for many of you who are looking for purpose and you are looking to tap into this calling that you have, this thing that has been residing in you that you don't quite know what to do with, may I suggest to you this evening that that is the spirit moving you to become part of a community that is not self-seeking and self-serving, but one that is about the things that Jesus is about. And may I also suggest that for those of you that have partnered with us to hold us accountable to that, where it does not become the thing that, that we just do or the click that we have started for ourselves to have people to hang out with, but where we actually become externally focused and our table is always growing with people who are respected, with people who are dignified, people who are included because that is what I believe Jesus is asking us to do. That is part of this new creative moment where we say this gift that we have received through Christ, it's not just for me and it's not just for you. It's for anybody. So wherever it is that you sit this evening and whatever it is that you've brought with you into this space, 
I hope that this evening what you hear is an invitation. That if you have not yet partnered with Jesus in this beautiful, restorative work that he is doing, where you first get to receive that for yourself, where you first get to become a new creation, understanding that Jesus has forgiven you and loves you and has accepted you, but now Jesus is moving you to be transformed and to be more and more like him each and every day. My hope is that in the midst of this talk on the church and the potential failures that we have laid out there for you, that what you hear is a call to do something different. What will you and what will we do in response? My hope is that we begin to become a community that provides a beautiful living picture of Jesus to the people around us.